We never did determine what you were going to sacrifice if you had to. How many of you were going to sacrifice a cat? Chickens. Chickens is good. How many cats? How many think cats are of the devil? I'm just not got the jury out on that one. Um, they could well be. They could well be. Hey, it's great to see you here today. Um, I just want to bring up a few slides of um, our journey that we went on because I want to, while I was away on study leave, because I really want to you to, f- to know where we've been and to see some of the things because they've been incredibly impacting into my life. This is in Athens and it's one of the amphitheatres that they have. If you look closely, you can see they're setting it up. It's still used and there's a concert going on there. They're laying big tiles and there's people on the stage down the bottom. Those amphitheatres will house thousands and thousands of people. So still being used. This is the Acropolis um, on the... uh, It's not a great shot. It's the best one I've got. And the girl in there is very special. So um, it's, it's, the Acropolis is an incredible place. And this is, this is where I first came into contact with where Paul had walked. And for me personally, to go where Paul had walked made a huge impact. You know, we live in New Zealand. We believe the Bible. But to go where one of the um, apostles or... Uh, an apostle by the name of Paul actually was, was just an incredibly solidifying thing for me. It was like, yeah, I know it happened, but this really happened. Can we go on to the next one? Just looking down from the similar site, similar position over the city. This is Mars Hill, where Paul met with the people. There's, there's leafy trees all around, and you can just imagine all these, all these um, intellectual, God-interested uh, people around there, and Paul engaging with them. It's just an incredible place. I didn't know it would look like that, but that was it. This is on Patmos Island, where we, we got a ferry and went to Patmos, and we're walking up the kind of road that they have in a, a lot of Portugal, Spain, um, Greece, just a cobbled um, sort of road that's very old. Looking up, where the white building is there is where the cave that John was in when he, when he dictated, was dictated Revelation and he wrote it down. But of course they build buildings over everything, whether it's Israel or, or um, Turkey or Greece. And so we went into that. But up the top, up the top is a, um, a monastery built like a fort. Um, They had a lot of trouble with pirates and things, so it doubled as monastery plus fort. We get up there in the end. Next, you can't actually take photos in um, the cave that he was in, but there's a picture in the wall when you go in, and the sign saying no photos from that point on. But there's John and his scribe um, on, on on writing Revelation. Now, I thought... I was just completely struck by the fact that if you had to get exiled anywhere in the world, a Greek island is a great place to get exiled to. So here we have John in his cave. This is looking out the window of of the building that is where the cave is. And he's got elevated sea views over the harbour, looking out. The wind blows. It's just beautiful. Carrying on. Uh, This is right up the top in the monastery area, just looking back down again onto the the harbour. And there's one of, yeah, Sandra and I just right up the top. Next. 
And this is, this, is, um, this is Pythagoria, where we were staying. And there's a boardwalk along the front. The boats are backed in. Um, the boats are ordering food from the restaurants, and the restaurant people are going out and taking it across and sitting down, and then everyone's sitting at the tables that are there. But Pythagoria is Pythagoras. This is where he, he, he lived. He was born and lived. And I think we've done I want to talk on this topic of, is God schizophrenic? Um, I was at Hillsong a few years ago, and Brian Houston, who would be one of the heroes, I believe, and the generals of the church in our day, was talking about getting conned. And he got conned to come and meet a group of atheists. He thought he was going to a small group of atheists, but when he got there, he found, this is in Sydney, he, he found it was actually a mensa group. And Mensa are people who score in the highest percentile of intelligence around anywhere, the world. They're in above the top five percentile of intelligence. Brian said there were about 30 of them in the room, and they just wanted to grill him. And they were wanting to know how he could possibly be a Christian and believe that God was even existed. And if he did exist, that he was, that, that he was a good God. Because look at the God in the Old Testament compared to the God in the New Testament. The God in the Old Testament is killing people. There's ites that are dying. And, and there's just all sorts of grisly stories. How can God truly be the same and, and and be this loving God when we have this portrayal in the Old Testament compared to a portrayal of a loving God in the New Testament? That's a big question. Asked by some of the lawyers and judges and the top intelligent people in Sydney of Brian. And I guess Brian wouldn't be one to say he got more than school cert UE. And he said it was just an incredible experience to be in the room getting grilled by these people. And he, he answered and he said, it is all to do with covenants. God makes covenants with people. And the way that that covenant reads is the way that God will interact with the people in that time and season. I pricked my ears up because although I've done Bible college, I had never, ever heard the, the thought that covenants makes that kind of difference. You know, in the New Testament, there's quite a lot about covenants because in the early days, people were getting the covenants all mixed up. And it's still true today. People are still getting the covenants mixed up, especially the Moses covenant of the law and the Jesus covenant of grace. And we have been raised, most of us, in a mixture which tends to become toxic the moment there's any problem or trouble. And how many knows problems and trouble kind of go with everybody? Anybody never had problem and trouble? <laughs> At least you're being honest or asleep. Now, friends, I want to unpack this a bit over the next couple of weeks or over my preaching, but starting today. And I want to say, first of all, God is absolutely constant. You know, the Bible says he's the same yesterday, today, and... And he has always wanted a relationship with us as human beings. Ever since Adam and Eve messed up, he sought to make a way that people who are imperfect can be in a relationship with a God who is absolutely perfect. And at the core of God's nature, the Bible tells us, is goodness and love. But he also is justice and holiness. And in Jesus... 
God made a way to be able to forgive sin and redeem and accept us. And this book... Someone got a, uh, an actual Bible? It would help me. I mean, a, a bound copy Bible. Thanks, Todd. Great having you here today, Todd, every, and every day. Good to see you on stage. Um, this book is the, is the record. It's the story. You see, the Bible is the written record of God's covenant story with his people. However, our understanding of the Bible is often ill-informed. For example... The whole Bible is valuable to us, but not all of it's applicable to us. It's all written for us, but it wasn't written to us. And often we read it as if every page and every aspect applies here. It's not true. For example... The 66 books here are often called the canon of Scripture. Have you heard that? Give me a wave if you're familiar with that word, the canon of Scripture. It actually doesn't make sense saying it like that. Because the canon is a written story of a covenant. And it explains how that covenant is working and sometimes it explains why it was set up. So how many covenants are there in this? It's called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. How many covenants are in this book? Five. Some would say seven, but there's five clear covenants in here, not two. You know, Noah, God made a covenant with him, and the sign of that covenant was the... Abraham, God made a covenant with him, and the sign of that covenant was... Circumcision. And all the men say, ouch. And the women say, great. And Moses, God made a covenant with Moses. And the symbol of that was the, of the law was the Ten Commandments. And David, God made a covenant with David. And, and that was within Moses' time frame of the bigger covenant. God made a covenant with David. And, and the, the symbol of that was worship. Now, the canon of Noah is found in Genesis chapter 7 to 11. And the canon of Abraham is found from Genesis chapter 12 through to Exodus chapter 19. And the canon of Moses is from Exodus 19 to... Have a guess. The end of the Old Testament? End of the Gospels. It's to the cross. Jesus was born under the law. He came into the Old Testament, Moses' covenant time. And then the new covenant starts with the cross and the resurrection and goes on to the end of Revelation, and it will go on into the future. So if there are five covenants, how many canons is this really? It's not a trick one, it's five. Good, well done, you're with me. And God, who is constant in nature, has related to mankind on the basis, thanks Todd, on the basis of at least five different covenants. And this is what Brian was trying to explain to these bright, bright men and women. Now, there are three kinds of covenants that are possible in the world, and we see in the Bible, or we see at least two in the Bible. 
The first kind of covenant is called a grant covenant, and it's the best kind of covenant to get into. It's where a greater king blesses a lesser king or a lesser person, a lesser entity, but all the responsibility to keep the covenant stays with the greater king. It's called a grant covenant. It's absolutely the best. And then we have a kinship covenant where two parties on equal terms covenant with each other like in marriage. That's a kinship covenant. And it has rules and it has regulations and it has consequences for the breaking of those things. A kinship covenant. And then we have a vassal covenant. And this is the kind of covenant when an oppressive king will kill all the fighting men and then tells the women, the children, the sick, and anyone else that's left over, I don't really care. I could kill you today, or you will become my slaves and my workers, and you will pay me tribute on some sort of annual basis. Three types of covenant. The good thing is, God loves grant covenants. Noah, Abraham, David, and Jesus' covenant. Only Moses' covenant was a kinship, equal party covenant, and it was never God's intention. Did you know that? I didn't. Not until quite recently when I started to really research this. And it changes everything. And when you look at that Bible, you start to see a completely different picture as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth amongst us. Now, a grant covenant has no strings attached for the promises to be fulfilled. Take Noah, for example. God promises that he won't flood the earth again and kill almost everybody. And the sign of that was the, the rainbow. But consider how scared Noah would be. He's only ever once seen it rain, and when it did, almost everybody is wiped out. Can he trust God? Consider how Moses would, uh, Noah would feel when he's been really naughty on the day before, and then it rains. Has he wiped it all out? Will he now be killed by the rain again? We know the answer. He's not because it's not based on his performance. It's based on the, the will of the one who granted these promises to him. What about David? What about David? David was promised much. One of the things he was promised was that one of his sons would be um, in the earthly line of the Messiah, in the earthly line of Jesus Christ. And then he goes out and stupidly commits adultery, gets the woman pregnant, and then he takes a contract for murder out on her husband, and he, he allows it to happen, and her husband is killed. What happens now? What will God do? Will God withdraw the promise that he's given to, to David that he's going to be, uh, have one of his kids in the royal line of Jesus? And the answer is no, it will be kept because it wasn't based on David's performance. It was based on the worth and the word of the great king who promised it. 
Do you, do you get what I'm saying? This is why a grant co covenant is the best kind of covenant for us to be in. So what about Moses' covenant? Well, I want to speak about that next time I'm preaching. But tragically, the people rejected God's offer of a grant covenant. Tragically. And they entered into a kinship covenant where both parties are equal with rules and blessings and cursings for how they respond. So I want to look at Abraham's grant covenant today. And again, it's in Genesis chapter 12 right through to Exodus chapter 19, about 400 plus years. Now I went through the scriptures and I looked in Genesis 12 through to, through to um, chapter 23 and I found to find what did God promise Abraham. And I want to bring the scriptures up, if we can just go to the first one, but I don't want to read all the scripture out, but I want you to know that it's there. You can pick your Bible up and you can go through in your own time. But he prom God promises Abraham, I will make you a great nation. And then he says, I will bless you and make, keep, just keep up with me, I'll bless you and I'll make you famous. That's not bad, eh? And then he says, anyone that blesses you, or sorry, you will bless other people. The reason that I'm going to prosper you, the reason I'm going to give you this fame, I'm going to make you stand up, is so, not so you keep it, but so you give it away to everybody. And then he says, I'll, bless, I'll even bless people that bless you. If someone says something nice about you, I will make sure that they get a reward for it. Isn't that incredible? And then fifthly, he says, through you, all the families on the earth will be blessed. And the Jews forgot this, and they made the whole thing about them and their nation. But right at the beginning, God was saying, it's not going to stay with you, Abraham. It's not even going to stay with your descendants, Abraham. It's going to go out from your descendants to every single nation. And we are the result of that. Yeah. Right? God plans long term. You thought you had long plans. God's got better and longer plans. And then he says, sixthly, I'll give you the land of Canaan. Not a bad promise, eh? And then seventhly, I'll give all the land your eyes can see as a permanent possession. And then eighthly, he says, I'll give you innumerable descendants. And it's like Abraham and, and uh, Sarah. At first, they, they had to wait 25 years, remember, before the child came. So God just came to them over and over and over and over, saying, you're going to have heaps of kids. There's going to be grandkids. There's going to be grandkids, 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 because they were finding it so hard to believe. He's a good God, eh? Yeah. And then ninthly, he, um, the promise is God will fight for you. That's not bad. And in verse 10, he says it again, I will protect you. Uh, sorry, in verse 15, he says, I will protect you. And then the 11th thing God promises him is that his reward will be great. It won't even be small. And then 12thly, he says, your, you will, your own son will be your heir. It won't be Ishmael. And then in verse 13, he says, you will be made righteous. And then, so not verse 13, the 13th promise. The 14th promise is, you will die in peace at a ripe old age. How many would like God to say that to you at some stage? That's a good one. I'm, I'm after God for that. And then number 15, I guarantee, Abraham, I'm guaranteeing to give you countless descendants. And then he, and the 16th thing he said was, I'll make you the father of many nations. So not just, not just 
the Jewish people that's going to spread. And then 17th, I'll make you very fruitful. Your descendants will even include kings. You know, God can tell us stuff, but we don't understand it. I wonder whether Abraham knew that I'll make you the father of many nations meant what we know it to mean. I wonder whether he cottoned on at all to what he was saying. Because God can speak. He's probably told you and me stuff that we haven't figured out either. But he's told us the truth. We just haven't got our head around it, our heart around it yet. 17th, he said, um, uh, 18th, sorry, he said, the covenant will be with your descendants in every generation. He said, I'm going to renew it. It's one of the reasons why things just go on and on and on. And then in verse uh, the 19th thing, he said, it'll be an everlasting covenant. Would you say the word everlasting? everlasting? And he meant it. And then in 20, I'll give you the land, the entire land of Canaan, to be to your descendants forever. And the 21st thing that he said to Abraham is, the terms of the covenant are that the males get circumcised. Ooh. And then the 22nd thing he said, and that's it. That's it. You say, well, there's, there's one thing that has to be done. Yes, you're right. The males have to get circumcised. And then it says, your wife will be blessed and fertile and she'll become the mother of nations. And the 23rd promise that God gave to Abraham was, I'll definitely bless you. You're gonna, I'm going to multiply your descendants like the stars in the sky and they'll conquer cities. So this is what God promised to Abraham and his descendants. And the terms of having this covenant happen were so simple. Males get circumcised and keep every generation circumcised. And all these promises can be summed up as promises of God's presence, that he would personally be with them. You can see that amongst many of those promises. And they are promises of provision by this God, presence and provision. But I want you to notice that all these blessings were promised only to those who were descendants of Abraham. And that's why the Jews counted their lineage up until the time when the temple was destroyed in AD 70 very, very, very carefully. And only those that knew their fathers, fathers, grandfathers, fathers, all the way back because it was based on their their descent as to whether they were children of Abraham and able to be blessed by God in this way. And before Jesus came, it was only the Jews. Now that's a little alert to those of you that are are, are awake, that there's more to it than just the Jews. And that's why this thing of lineage was so important. And why often, uh, several times they said, our father's Abraham to Jesus. And he says, no, he's not, he's the devil. You've actually missed it. But they were, they were going back to this covenant that said, provided I am born in the direct descendants from Abraham himself, God's blessing will be on my life if I'm circumcised. And so it was based on pedigree, not performance. God's favor wasn't, wasn't given to those who behaved right, but those who were born right. And the sign that, that they would uh, had this special privilege from God was male circumcision. And the sign was a reminder, that's all. Who needed reminding? Do you think it was God? Do you think he would forget who was down there and which were his? It was the males. They needed reminding. So every day when they got up in the morning and they went to the bathroom and they looked down, 
they were reminded that they were special to God. And favor and destiny was over their life. But everything, every blessing was based on only one party. It was a grant covenant. And the one who, who it was based upon was God in his goodness. And we see this in the story of the ratifying of this covenant. If, if I bring up these scriptures in Genesis chapter 15, it says, Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. to give." Actually, Ur of the Chaldeans, um, or where he ended up, was in Turkey. I, I'm really fascinated by Turkey. The whole book of Acts is Turkey. You read stuff in the book of Acts, apart from chapters 1 and 2, you're reading about Turkey. Even Abraham went to Haran. Haran is just a few miles from the border between Turkey and Syria. Wouldn't be a good place to be today. But, but Abraham came out of Turkey. I brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your inheritance, your possession. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can I be sure that I will actually Get it. And the Lord told him, Bring me a three year old heifer, a three year old female goat, a three year old ram, a turtle dove, a young pigeon, and a cat. <laughs> so Abraham presented all these to him and killed them. Then he cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. And as the sun was going down, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Now what it's talking about is God in his presence coming right down over Abraham. It says terrifying darkness. We should understand that, I think, as awe-inspiring being. You know, God is... God is lovely and nice, but it does say he's a, he's a raging fire. And it's, it, it, to fall into his hands outside of, outside of Jesus Christ is a terrifying thing. And God brought his presence down over, over um, Abraham. And it's like he either put him into a trance or he put him into a dreamlike state where he could hear and see and understand but not move. It says... Then the Lord said to Abraham, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land. Where's he talking about? Egypt. Yep, they'll go to Egypt. And they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they will come away with great wealth. Which is exactly what they, 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 the Jews got to take, or the Israelites, the Jewish people got to take the wealth of the superpower of their day away with them. But as for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. After four generations, 400 years, your descendants will return here to this land, for the sins of the Amorite do not yet warrant their destruction. And after the sun went down and darkness fell, Abraham saw a smoking fire pot and flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcass. So the Lord made a covenant with Abraham that day and said, I have given you, given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River. So as I said, Abraham is put into this trance-like or dream-like state. Anyone seen anyone under the power of God in a trance or dream-like state? Yeah, yeah, you would have, Graham. I remember one day where 
the presence of God came. Winky Prattney and Ray Comfort were preaching at a youth camp I was at. This is all by the side, actually. So this doesn't count on my minutes. Oh, dear. Um, two guys ran out into the as, the... as the power of God fell on the meeting, two guys ran out in terror. I guess shame has a way of doing that. If we've been up to stuff that we know is wrong, we will either repent immediately or we'll run in shame. And these guys ran out, and they were found out in the field... One of them was standing, the other one I think was horizontal, and we had to carry them back and put them back into the meeting, and uh, they were, stayed in that state for hours and came out of it, we put them off to bed, etc., etc. They were fine, but God does this. And he could see and understand, but the, the fact is, two parties did not go between the carcasses that were being sacrificed for the covenant. Only God did. Only one party. Abraham was totally immobilized, and God formed a grant covenant with Abraham so that his blessing could be on him, not because of his performance and how well he kept rules, but on the basis that God is a good God and well able to bless because he chooses to. Now, here's the hard part to believe. Never once after God swore his covenant oath to Abraham did he curse him, rebuke him, or punish him, or judge him, or any of his descendants until Exodus chapter 19. And that was the, in spite of the fact that they all behaved badly. It's a grant covenant. Think of Abraham. Two times, because of cowardly thinking on Abraham's behalf, he lies about his wife being his wife, and two different kings take her to have sex with her and include her in their concubine group. And it would seem at least one of them was successful. What kind of husband does that? Yet God doesn't rebuke him or condemn Abraham he just continues the covenant promises over his life. Here's a little aside. How beautiful was Sarah that when she's in her 70s and she's so beautiful, they come to an agreement not to say that they're married because Abraham's scared he's going to lose his life and someone will steal her. How beautiful is this woman? Isaac, Abraham's son, fascinatingly, Isaac does exactly the same thing with his wife. How, how do these guys get these gorgeous wives like this, that in their 70s, kings are after them? And God's response to Isaac is to bless Isaac and to give him great wealth. And what about Jacob, who's a deceiver? That's what his name means. And he deceives Isaac for Esau's, Esau's blessing. And God's response is to do exactly what Isaac prays over his life. He doesn't say, you got it mixed up, you got the brothers, you got the hands, you're in the wrong place. I'm not doing that. He, he blesses Jacob. There's no rebuke, no punishment. 
And later on in Jacob's life, he and his wife, Rachel, steal their father's, her father's gods and they lie to her father when her father catches up with them and says, have you taken these things? Yet there's no rebuke from God for Jacob. The only one God rebukes is Laban, Rachel's father, for wanting to hurt Jacob. Reuben has sex with one of his father's wives. He has sex with his stepmother, and there's no rebuke or curse or punishment upon Reuben. Judah, another one of the sons, hires a prostitute, and he ends up impregnating his own daughter-in-law. It's a complex story that you have to read. It's, it's, it, you can read it there, but, but there's no rebuke. There's no, there's no punishment over his life. All Joseph's brothers plot to kill him and only belatedly relent and instead sell him into slavery. They believe it's going to be for life he'll be a slave. Yet God continues to keep his covenant promises over their lives and not judge them. Now let's fast forward 425 years, and we're now at the situation where they've been in, Israel, uh, in Egypt, and now God's called the whole people, and there's several million of them, there's at least a million, there's probably several million of them now on the planet after these 425 years. And in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites are at the Red Sea, and they start complaining to Moses. And God's response isn't anger or punishment. He parts the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 15, they come to a place where there's only bitter water. There's no water to, to, to uh, drink. And they whine and they complain at Moses and at God. And God's response is to make the water sweet. And then in Exodus chapter 16, they can complain and grumble that there's no food. And so God graciously provides food called manna. And he gives them a test with the manna, and he says, just take one day's supply. Don't get more for the next days, except on the, Saturday, on the, on the uh, day before the Sabbath, which would be the Friday, so that the Sabbath, you've, you don't have to go out and collect. And they immediately disobey. Do you know who gets angry? Moses gets angry, and God just gives them more food. There's no rebuke. There's no punishment. On their lives. Hard to believe? What is God doing? He's interacting with the people of Israel on the basis of a covenant that He's made with them. It's a grant covenant, it's where all the responsibility for keeping it is on God's side. But all of that is just about to change. And soon even the smallest mistake and misdemeanor will bring instant judgment onto the people and 3,000 people are going to die as, in, in response to the first mistake that's made. And it's because of a covenant change that was never God's plan. You know, there are so many promises made to Abraham, so many threads that run through what I've been speaking about today from Abraham. There are threads to the Jews, even the Jewish nation today, and there are threads to us that are Christians today. But because God is the one who upholds the promises, these things still continue to take place. And I don't want to 
to um, cloud the issue of what I'm actually preaching about today, that God is not schizophrenic, that God doesn't have good days and bad days, that God is trustable, that God is the same in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. His core value is, is that he is a good God. I don't want to take away from that in any great way, but I do want to say that there are threads going through this, promises that were everlasting promises to the Jews about Canaan. And after World War II, the conscience of the world was pricked for this people who had stayed a nation even though they didn't have a homeland for 2,000 years. And now there'd been genocide and six million of them plus had been killed. And, and the, the people they, at, at the UN, the newly formed UN, and I think it was called the League of Nations before that, but the, at the UN they started to say, this people needs a homeland. We need to give them a homeland. And do you know where they wanted to give them land? In Uganda. And that, that was, let's get them to the Uganda. They can have a homeland in Uganda. And a young 23-year-old Jew made several passionate speeches to, to the uh, UN. And, and he, he afterwards, he, and he said, Israel... Canaan, that's our land, Canaan. And afterwards, he went up to the British diplomat and he said, would you like me to take London from you? And you can no longer as a British person have London and I'll give you Paris. Now, the French and the English, they got some history. And, you know, if I can put it this way, if the diplomat was holding a cup of tea, he almost spilt it. He was so, Paris, Paris. He said, our city is London, our river is the Thames. And this young 23-year-old said to him, and our, our land is Canaan, and our mountain is Mount Moriah, and our city is Jerusalem, and our river is the Jordan. And he got it. They got it. In 1948, they were given that land, even though they were going back into the most heated and contested area of the world. And they've been there ever since. Why? Because it's a grant, covenant, that God gave to the descendants of Abraham. You know, there's much I could say in application to um, Christians today, but I'd I'd just confuse things. Uh, Or I'd add possible confusion into, we'll come to it another day. But what I want to say to you today is deepen your spirit. You can trust God. Let that settle into your spirit. He's not schizophrenic or bipolar. And he relates to humankind on the basis of the covenants that he's made. So don't be confused about whether God is good or not. He is a good God. This is God acting consistently with the New Testament. Can you see it? This is the father of the prodigal son relating with another son called Abraham and his descendants who for 400 years in a similar way to the father relates to us today in the new covenant are relating, is relating to, to them. And perhaps you can grasp in this how much higher and how much more intelligent God's planning actually is. You know, our plans, they last a lifetime. We've got plans that we hope will come to pass, and we've set the course of our life to do certain things. But his plans run for generations. They run even for centuries, and they even run for millennia and beyond. 
That's the bigness and the greatness of the mind and the heart of the God whom we serve. You can trust him, therefore. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Can the team come?